Our Old Testament reading is from Genesis chapter 21. Genesis chapter 21, we'll read verses 8 through 21. I'll lend your attention, this is the very word of God. And the child grew and was weaned. And Abraham made a great feast on the day that Isaac was weaned. But Sarah saw that the son of Hagar, the Egyptian, whom she had borne to Abraham, laughing. So she said to Abraham, Cast out this slave with her son, for the son of this slave woman shall not be heir with my son Isaac. And the thing was very displeasing to Abraham on account of his son. But God said to Abraham, Be not displeased because of the boy and because of your slave woman. Whatever Sarah says to you, do as she tells you, for through Isaac shall your offspring be named. And I will make a nation of the son of the slave woman also, because he is your offspring. So Abraham rose early in the morning and took bread and a skin of water and gave it to Hagar, putting it on her shoulder along with the child and sent her away. And she departed and wandered in the wilderness of Beersheba. When the water in the skin was gone, she put the child under one of the bushes Then she went and sat down opposite him a good way off, about the distance of a bow shot. For she said, let me not look on the death of the child. And as she sat opposite him, she lifted up her voice and wept. And God heard the voice of the boy. And the angel of God called to Hagar from heaven and said to her, what troubles you, Hagar? Fear not, for God has heard the voice of the boy where he is. Up, lift up the boy and hold him fast with your hand for I will make him into a great nation. Then God opened her eyes, and she saw a well of water. And she went and filled the skin with water and gave the boy a drink. And God was with the boy, and he grew up. He lived in the wilderness and became an expert with the bow. He lived in the wilderness of Paran, and his mother took a wife for him from the land of Egypt. Thus ends the reading of God's word. And you can turn to the Gospel of Matthew for our Sermon text. We come to Matthew chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. I'll lend your attention. This is God's very word. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord and make his paths straight. Now John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him, and they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Thus ends the reading of God's word. May he add his blessing to it. Join me in prayer as we ask that very blessing. Father, how good it is uh, to uh, have your word, uh, to hear the the voice of uh, your servant from long ago, and to uh, recognize 
that it is a voice carrying uh, not the words of man, uh, but your words, uh, the, the revelation uh, of who you are and what you are doing and what you are going to do. And so we pray, Father, that we would receive your word, not as the word of men, but as your very word, and that by it we would be strengthened, uh, built up, uh, retrieved, chastened if necessary, and oriented aright to the only hope, the only name in heaven and on earth by which we may live, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. I prepare our hearts, attend your word, attend my words, Lord. I bring forth from uh, this meager portion uh, an end that can only come from you, uh, the upbuilding and the preserving of your people. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. <clears throat> now, don't miss the forest for the trees. Have you heard this saying? Don't miss the forests for the trees. That means uh, kind of getting fixed on, on one detail, uh, one particular item, one small piece uh, such that you end up missing the big picture. You end up really missing the most basic and most fundamental and the most significant meaning. That's really what Israel was in danger of doing when John the Baptist appeared on the scene. Now, John was uh, remarkable. He's a remarkable tree. <laughs> You can see why someone might miss the forest for this particular tree. Now, Jesus will go on to say there's no one born among women that's as great as John the Baptist. That's really saying something. And we know, not just from Scripture, uh, but from accounts at the time, even Josephus, um, the fact that uh, even kings, in some sense, marked John, saw John, fixated upon John. All of that tells us plenty. John was incredible. John was significant. John was a well-known. But those who marked him were in danger. Remember the conversation that John records in his gospel. Asking him, you must be the Christ. This must be it. You must be the guy. This tree. He says, no, there's a forest. Mm. You're missing it. Mm. I start this way because it was an interesting experience preparing the sermon this week because I almost missed the forest for this tree. Early in the week, this was shaping up to be a sermon about John the Baptist. And that was a really interesting experience because that's exactly what happened. The crowds made it about John the Baptist. This chapter, in one sense, is about John the Baptist. You'll notice how all of chapter 3 is structured by three interactions that he has. Verses 1 through 6, it's John and the people. Verses 7 through 12, it's John and the religious leaders. And then verses 13 to the end, it's John and Jesus. So perhaps you can excuse me and maybe them by saying, well, yeah, like this is about John. You've got to preach about John. That's missing the forest for the trees. 
Because what does John say? <laughs> he says, it's not about me. He says, I'm just another servant in a long line of servants pointing beyond himself. Here, he says, it's not about me. It's about the kingdom that's drawn near. And the next one, he's going to say, it's not about me. It's the one who's coming after me. The one to whom I shouldn't even be compared. And then in the last one, John adds his voice to the Father's voice. He says, it's definitely not about me. It's about Jesus. It's about him. The one in whom heaven delights. The one before whom I was sent to prepare you to see aright. It's a good reminder for us, even at the very outset. God's word should bring us face to face with Christ. God's word should bring us face to face with Jesus Christ. That continues to be true now as God's word is read, as God's word is preached, as God's word is visibly administered. It would be a mistake for us to miss the forest for the trees. We don't stop at what we see. These things that look remarkable. They point us to the one who can't be seen, but to whom these things truly point and posture us before and bring us to and call us to and demand that we bow before and welcome in faith and trust. God's word brings us face to face with Jesus. So this is not a sermon about John. It's a sermon about the one whom John preached, heaven's king, who alone brings heaven's kingdom. That's how he starts, verses 1 and 2. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. God's word of blessing appears in the midst of desolation. Not just the desert, but it's the desert of Judea. What do we know about Judea? Jesus can't go there, not as a child. It's the arena of threat. It's the arena of pure opposition to God's kingdom and his Messiah. And that's the very place that God announces his kingdom. <laughs> the very seat of man, as it were. John appears and says... God's kingdom is near. That's what he announces. Repent for the kingdom of heaven has drawn near. How do I get to heaven? How do you get to heaven? I'm terrible with directions. I despise technology, but I'm utterly dependent upon those maps. <laughs> I'll be hopelessly wandering around. Any pastoral visit. If I don't show up, it's because I forgot my phone and I'm just wandering around Coon Rapids. How do you get to heaven? How do I get to heaven? John tells us plainly, you can't. In one very important sense, you cannot get to heaven. That's been true from the very beginning. Since man's terrible sin and his expulsion from the garden... And to make matters worse, he has consistently sought ways back into heaven. 
illegitimate ways back into heaven. That's what Babel is. Let's force our way back to heaven. Let's climb our way back to heaven. Let's build our way back to heaven. Let's storm our way back to heaven. Has he ever succeeded? Not only has he failed, but the latter state is worse than the former. (laughs) You cannot get to heaven. But praise God, heaven gets to you. That's what he says. The kingdom of heaven has drawn near. It's come. It's a mobile glory. It's an imperial glory. How terrifying it is when foreign kings are at the gate. That would have been Israel's experience. The kingdom of Babylon has drawn near. The kingdom of Assyria has drawn near. Later, the kingdom of Rome has drawn near. Everybody trembles. It's terrifying. Partly, with good reason, we know their tactics. We know their brutality. We know their cruelty. We know what it meant for the kingdom that's being besieged. It meant death of the most horrific variety. So we tremble when we hear this, also because we assume that what's in the gates is good and what's encroaching upon the gates is bad. The foreign kingdom is bad. And again, that makes sense because as we watch earthly kingdoms swell, whatever noble purposes might be in the mix, the heart of the human empire is hubris and cruelty. Alexander's campaigns were not magnanimous. Let me set out to bring good to all mankind. No, Alexander's campaign is let me subject all human beings to my glory so that they recognize that there has never been anyone like Alexander. There's never been anyone like Nebuchadnezzar. There's never been anyone like Tiglath-Pileser. Just fill in the blank. The situation on display here is not the enemies are at the gates. It's true liberation has arrived. The true kingdom. The likes of which brings light and life and righteousness and peace and joy. It's at the gate. Repent. The kingdom of heaven has drawn near. This is that kingdom that we heard about in Micah. Do you remember it? The elevation of the Lord's mountain above all earthly kingdoms. It's the kingdom that Daniel sees as he looks out over the course of human history and he sees one empire striving to be greater than the last empire and then he sees something different. He sees a kingdom that's not like those monsters. He sees a kingdom that's not like hybrid beasts, a bear with eagle's wings, a lion with eagle's wings, a bear that devours and 
looks like a monster, a cheetah with wings. Those are all hybrids. You can recognize them. Then another one comes. It's not even an animal. It's not even a hybrid of animals. It's a machine. It's these iron teeth. It's not even recognizable according to anything that's given under heaven and earth. It's something far worse. It's got horns, and yet it pretends to be a man because it speaks and it exalts itself against heaven. That's the kingdoms of man. John says something different here. The kingdom of heaven say a lot of things about what it is, but the one thing you have to say is it's not of earth. It's right there in the title. <laughs> say a lot of things about this kingdom, but the one thing you got to say is you can't build it. It's got to come. So we pray that kingdom come. Take heart, little children. It's my father's good pleasure to let you build the kingdom. No. Storm the kingdom. No. Receive the kingdom. There's something antithetical about the hearts that are incorporated into this kingdom and the hearts that characterize the various endeavors across all the kingdoms of earth and their cruelty and destruction, hubris, pain. John says, not the enemies are at the gates, but the grace of God in bringing life and immortality to light is here. It's here. Because he's wonderful. It should have been the enemies are at the gate. Because man had made heaven his enemy. That's what he should have said. That's a much scarier empire than Assyria. If God is your enemy, that's far more terrifying than Tiglath-Pileser. Nebuchadnezzar, as unstoppable as those juggernauts were, if God sets himself against you, where are you going to run? Where are you going to go? But John says that's not how he's come. Maybe John didn't fully understand it, but he still sees man's salvation in the approach of God, not man's destruction. He still sees that God is to be had in grace and mercy and not the judgment that man has justly deserved. And so he says, repent. Turn. Recognize what we've done with this place. It's not insignificant that this is a desert. It's Ozymandias. Look around. Look at our kingdom. Look at what we've done. It's death and ashes, sand, destruction as far as the eye can see. Who did this? You say, well, Herod did this. Well, Nebuchadnezzar did this. John says, repent. Common man. You're just as complicit as they are. Look around, look what we've done. Look at the state of things under our rule, under our reign. Repent, recognize the death that has been ushered in because of our sin. Repent, 
because God delights to forgive. It's stunning. He grounds that call to repentance in the grace of the gospel. Repent. Because the riches of God's blessing are at hand. They've drawn near. Acknowledge the poverty and the destruction which you yourself have worked. Acknowledge the judgment that ought to be yours. And then receive in humility the provision that he makes for sinners in forgiveness and life. And that which remains. Friends, the supreme goodness and mercy of God has drawn near in Jesus Christ. If you hear anything today, hear that. Repent and believe. Turn from your desolate trajectory and embrace heaven's king who alone gives forgiveness and life. Because that's also what John prepares us to receive not just a kingdom, but a king. Look what he says in Isaiah, when he quotes Isaiah 40. He answered, nope, that's the wrong passage. <laughs> Verse 3, for this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah, when he said, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make his paths straight. John's mission is to prepare God's people to receive her king. But that doesn't even really get at the full wonder. Because whose path is this? Who's going to walk down this path? That's what he's doing. He's like, all right, I've been raking a lot. These leaves are just such a good lesson in futility. If anyone's interested in knowing what Ecclesiastes meant, by vanity of vanity, all is vanity, you just rake. <laughs> it's just like, there they go, clean. Oh, there's another batch. Okay, <laughs> so that was useless. <laughs> and we'll do it again next fall. <laughs> Sisyphus. Uh, where was I? Prepare the way of the Lord. Whose way is this? Make straight a path. This is a herald going before a coming one. But the one coming is not just an earthly king. If you read Isaiah 40, the one who's coming is Yahweh. Yahweh's coming. God says, prepare. Your God's about to visit you. Prepare, your God is coming. Make way. Here comes the Lord of glory. And then Jesus appears on the scene. When I was in Ukraine, I had a Jehovah's Witness friend, and he would always come and we would talk. We got to be good friends. He was like, Can you show me where Scripture says Jesus is God? I'm like, Well, you mean other than the nine places where it says plainly Jesus is God? Okay, well, what about a place like this? What about a place where John says, I'm here to prepare the way for the Lord of glory so that earth will receive God as he comes and then Jesus shows up? What about that? <laughs> Matthew has a high view of Christ here. Don't let anybody tell you that John's gospel is the only one with a high Christology. It might be a little harder to see here, but don't miss it. 
God visits his people in the Lord Jesus Christ. And yet there is a sort of judgment in that. When we expect God to visit the earth, there's a certain ambiguity that hangs over it. Israel got all sorts of confused in this because they knew that the day of the Lord was coming and they knew that meant that, G, not Jesus, that God was going to show up. He was going to visit his people. So they got all sorts of obsessed with that and thought that it meant the destruction of the nations. So they were super excited about it because they hated the nations. So then you get the book of Jonah. <laughs> and God says, look, you've, you've missed it. That you've received mercy, and as a recipient of mercy, you should be very eager for everyone to receive mercy. In fact, that's why I've put you in this place. But there was this ambiguity that hung over the day of the Lord. Was it a day of salvation, or was it a day of judgment? Now, it's very plain. Jesus comes, and he proclaims the year of the Lord's favor dawning in him. That he comes not in glory, and judgment, he comes in grace and salvation. But there's also judgment in that. If Jesus Christ appears in grace and salvation and humility and meekness, bringing forgiveness and life, and yet he's rejected? If that truly sets God's heart towards sinners on display and he's rejected, what does that say about the hearts of those who reject such a one, such an approachable God? Even in the gospel, the heart of man is exposed. If the Lord Jesus Christ displays the heart of God towards sinners, in humility and meekness. And it has a hardening effect. That seems to me a more dreadful judgment than the alternative. If such a picture can harden. But mark that our sin is that dark. All of this is to say if you've not welcomed and bowed the heart in faith to the Lord of glory, come in grace, then you are not ready to meet the Lord of glory, come in glory. John is preparing the earth to meet their maker. Are you prepared to meet your maker? With what will you stand before him? If the answer is anything other than the Lord Jesus Christ, then you are not prepared to meet your maker. I would do you a disservice if I didn't press upon your heart the fact that none of us are guaranteed any amount of time. John appeared suddenly without warning and said, prepare to meet your maker. It will be the same for all of us. Suddenly, without warning, prepare to meet your maker. For those who have embraced the Lord Jesus Christ in faith, let me encourage you. You've already met your maker. 
and he's extended unto you a boundless love and mercy and welcome and forgiveness and righteousness. But mark that this kingdom and this king continues to be strange here on earth. The servants of this kingdom are strange. Notice verse 4. Now John wore a garment of camel's hair and leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. So interesting. Matthew all of a sudden wants us to know what he wears, what's in vogue those days in the Judean wilderness. Sort of a, a home and country magazine moment. <laughs> this is what all the servants are wearing. This is the hottest new dish. In the once and future king, no one likes Galahad. Have you met Galahad yet? Galahad's Lancelot's son. Galahad's a strange boy. He's mostly quiet. And rumor has it that he has already bested his father in both jousting and sword play. And that's saying something, because Lancelot is the greatest knight the world has ever seen. So, you do the math. But no one understood him. Everybody disliked him. He was pretty widely hated. His father was more charitable. He's trying to explain this to Arthur in his court. Arthur wants to know, well, why, why does everybody hate Galahad so much? And Lancelot says, well, the way I see it is, it's like this. I imagine if, if you met an angel and you tried to ask him how the weather was that day, he wouldn't answer you because he's just not interested in those things. He's seen a weightier world. He's seen a realm of surpassing beauty and greatness such that the trivialities with which we content ourselves and fill our lives, they don't mean anything to him. It's not a direct slight to you or me, but it does say something about us. <laughs> I think John was a lot like Galahad. I don't think we would have been comfortable around John. If John were to have shown up here this morning, there would have been a lot of people sitting away from him. <laughs> he makes us uncomfortable. He's seen something that we haven't. He knows something to a degree that we haven't known it. He's seen the truth of this world. That's why he's in the wilderness. He knows that the kingdom of this world has nothing really to offer. The pleasures of this world have nothing really to offer. The kings of this world cannot save. For those who are a little bit nerdy, you can do an interesting study on the desert. And its symbolic significance. God rescues his people from Egypt and he brings them where? Not to another kingdom, but to the wild regions. The kingdom where no man reigns. <laughs> and there he makes them his people. John has understood that fundamental truth that we all give at least an assent to 
that this world is passing away, that the things of this world are fading, that even the choicest gifts of this world do not endure. He's seen it with a plainness that compels him. And we see it on display in him. He wears a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist. His food was locusts and wild honey. Matthew's telling us a number of things here. One, he's telling us that John is a prophet. Two, more specifically, he's telling us that John is the fulfillment of Elijah who is to come. Elijah is explained in exactly these terms in 2 Kings 1.8. But he's also telling us that we should expect the servants of the kingdom to look different. What adorns them is not going to be the regalia that adorns the halls of kings. That's not going to be what truly identifies a true servant of the kingdom. It's not going to be the, the wealth of Herod. It's not going to be the riches of Egypt, not directly. That's not what's going to sit at the heart. In other words, God's servants are going to look poor in the eyes of the world. They're going to look low in the eyes of the world. They're going to look strange in the eyes of the world. They're going to cause discomfort in this world. As they say, there's a kingdom that you can't see, and it's the most important thing that anyone will ever tell you about. That's going to raise some eyebrows. <laughs> but there's also going to be something attractive about that. The crowds went to him, interestingly. Herod couldn't get enough of him. So we see this tension that sits at the heart of a true intrusion of the kingdom of heaven. It's both repulsive and attractive. <laughs> It's both strange and kind of wonderful. <laughs> it's the same tension that we see on display in Jesus, isn't it? Everywhere he went, people clamored after him. They couldn't get enough of him, but he perplexed. <laughs> there was a strangeness to him as well. There's any number of directions we could go with this. God doesn't call us all to this life of poverty. But he does call us all to recognize that the things of this world can't satisfy. He does call us all to recognize that even the choicest gifts in this life fade. And so we can give thanks that as God's people, by and large, he has given us a more than competent portion of this world's goods. That's the language of Westminster Shorter Catechism. Anybody deny that? He has given us a more than competent portion of this world's goods, and that's certainly worth marking with thanksgiving. But don't mistake that for the true good. Don't mistake that for the essence of what Christ came to purchase for you. Because guess what? The world might take that more than competent portion from you. Isn't that what happened in Hebrews? 
the congregation on display in the epistle to the Hebrews? What does he say? He says, well, the empire rose up and they took your competent portion. So let's get them. <laughs> well, the empire rose up and they took your more than competent portion. So, well, everybody in the hills will build our own kingdom. What does he say? Rejoice. 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 Church is bonkers right now, isn't it? It's nuts. You can't even say anymore that it's better to seek this spiritual kingdom and willingly forfeit the goods of this earth with grace and dignity. What if that's near the heart of the gospel? What does that say about us? Maybe Christ doesn't know us. I didn't plan on saying any of that. So take it to heart. He doesn't call us all to give up everything that we've had. But if he does, we better be willing to let it go. And the only way you're going to be willing to let it go is if you see the truth of this kingdom. That he gives freely. That's better than stuff. That's better than Edwards, England, or 1950s America, or the panhandle of Idaho. It's better. Read Hebrews 11. I want quiet and prosperity as much as the next person, but it's not why Christ died. He died to create a people who in the face of the collapse of prosperity can still say to a world that's perishing, there's something better. There's a hope that's tethered to something more sure. Something that won't fade and at its heart is forgiveness and love. This is the will of the Father that you believe in the one whom he sent and you love your brothers. That's way better. The church is bonkers right now, and it's not serving a world that's gone bonkers. And the way that we serve a world that's gone bonkers is by insisting that God's kingdom and righteousness is better than whatever configuration of the earthly kingdoms that your fallen heart or my fallen heart can configure. Obviously, I'm getting a little worked up. It seems timely, though. They respond. They go to him. And they receive the water of life. You say a lot about baptism. That's how he closes. Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him. And they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. All sorts of interesting questions about baptism here. All sorts of layers of significance which 
unfold to us in our baptism as Christ ushers us into the waters. There's even a really interesting question here about the relationship between John's baptism and Christian baptism. As far as I can tell, they're the same. One points forward to the coming one, John's baptism. One points upward to the risen and ascended one, Christian baptism. They both point to Christ as the only one who can forgive and cleanse and bring life in a wilderness. And that's the main thrust here, I think. They're in a wilderness, and yet there's water. It's an oasis. It's a little patch of life which springs forth as the kingdom intrudes itself and men recognize their destitution natively there everywhere on display, by the way, such that it is incontrovertible evidence. And yet life blossoms. (laughs) An oasis. My own experience within an oasis is unfortunate. The only time I've ever been to an oasis is in the desolate wilderness of the Chicago highway system. Where if you're driving on that mess of concrete and filth, you'll see an overpass that says oasis. I think that's an overstatement. (laughs) But you get what they're trying to do. Here you can find food, you can find fuel, you can find refreshment. Yeah, in a filthy world where you're going to make me eat Burger King. That's not this kind of oasis, but you can see the link. Here it's an actual provision of life. It's an actual intrusion of life and flourishing and fruit where there's desolation all around. And we're ushered into it through the waters of baptism. Brought before the one who is the resurrection of the life, the righteous branch, who's pleased to build his church, a kingdom. A people marked not by concern to get more stuff or protect the stuff that we have. Who's marked by a concern to found in all that we do, glorifying the one who brings everything to us as our heavenly father. Who has shown beyond a shadow of a doubt that he is favorably disposed to a people who are sinners, <laughs> who delights to welcome those who are complicit in this world of woe and bring them unto himself for something different all together. The oasis is the picture of the church. And maybe you're thinking, well, it doesn't look that different from the Chicago overpass. <laughs> but it is. If you see it with the eyes of faith, as you see it as those who have been brought to bow the knee to the Lord Jesus Christ, not as a bout of their own cleverness, but as the favor of God poured out upon one who was plunging into woe and ruin, and who now deci- desires to see other sinners plunging towards woe, retrieved and brought in. If you can believe it, the darkness that you see everywhere on display in the world and the hearts which promulgate it, they're worthy 
of our compassion because they have no idea the destruction into which they're plunging. And if the church fixed her gaze upon heaven and heaven's king, maybe she wouldn't be as undone at the prospect of losing a little patch of dust and ashes. And she'd be able to say, there's something better. <laughs> Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. And that's what Christ prayed for you. That's what he's going to pray for us until the end of all things. May more and more have the eyes to see the riches of this kingdom. Let's pray. Father, we are a foolish and wayward people. Uh, we get things wrong so many ways, and yet you have set your love upon us. Uh, we pray, Lord, that you would uh, sanctify us by your truth. Correct us, retrieve us, build us up, orient us aright as we get intoxicated with the things of this world, as we get intoxicated with the ways of this world, sober us up by that pure water and bread come down from heaven so that we rightly place our hope and look with hope unto the only one who will never disappoint, the Lord Jesus Christ. For we ask in his name. Amen. Mm -hmm.